You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Thanks for joining us this week, or if you're new, thanks for being here for the first time. I am Michelle Camayo. I'm the Vice President of Compliance here at Bolton & Company. I work with employers every single day that are wanting to be compliant or wanting to consider being compliant. And so I had these practical discussions with employers on a daily basis. I do not give legal advice. I have a discussion where we talk about how to be compliant or how to remain compliant and whether or not that is in contrast to a business objective that you might be trying to reach. And so we talk about that and we had those discussions. The information that's been coming in lately is is changing rapidly. And not only, I don't wanna say necessarily the law is changing once it comes out, once the regulations have come out, but what changes is the clarification behind it. Because we're in this time where everything is coming out so fast. The, the uh, politicians are drafting laws without being able to give it a second thought. And then they're passing it so fast to respond and to help everyone that often when when it gets to us and we have to interpret it, we look at it, we say, what were they thinking? This makes no sense whatsoever. So it takes time to to get that clarification. And it's just all due to the world we're living in right now where we all have to respond so quickly. The clarification takes that takes time. The objective today is that just to have a conversation with employers along the way. I know that HR leaders and business owners want validation on on what they're reading. So you might be here because you're you're thinking I read something or I'm doing something and I want I want to know if it's okay or what are other employers doing. So we hope to be that second set of eyes and just have a conversation today and provide a little bit of guidance where you may not have seen any as of yet. All right, so today we have our normal agenda. We have uh, some updates from the last couple of weeks. We're gonna talk about key topics. And then my favorite segment called Toilet Paper Talk. Will This is our weekly segment or bi-weekly segment a review of things that have become incredibly relevant, like toilet paper. And then we'll go into a guidance wish list, which we keep updated every time we we discuss. And so we'll talk about that. This is a reminder that all prior episodes are a podcast. So if you haven't had a chance or there was something on a prior episode that you want to listen to at your leisure, which you can do on your phone, which is more convenient, I think, than clicking on a GoToWebinar link, you could go to Apple Podcasts and download Kamayo's Compliance Talk. You'll have all the episodes there, including the last one I had last week with our guest speaker, Bob Radicke. He's always a little bit entertaining. So if you want, if you have, didn't hear the one from last week, um, you can get some good compliance information with hopefully a little bit of entertainment there as well. So summary of updates from last week, this is really strictly benefits. 
So I'm going to talk a little bit more about the insurance premium care, the credits that the carriers are issuing. More and more are coming in each day. In fact, we got from, we got notification from Anthem yesterday evening that they are in, issuing credits. And we'll talk more about that as well. Uh, but the reason this is important is we want to clarify what you as the employer can do with that premium credit. And it's not always just go to the bank and, and keep the money. Or, well, it's not going to be a check. It'll be a premium credit on your invoice. But you cannot always keep that money as the employer. You may have to share it with your participants. So that's why we talk about it. The IRS notices relaxing, relaxing the Section 125 changes. We're, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. We talked about it last week when it was new. I want to talk about it again because I know that the more you hear it, the more it will make sense. But we are getting a little bit past that as employers have started to make their decisions. Have some clarity on COBRA deadline extensions that I want to share with you, give you a little bit more guidance on that. And then finally, the FFCRA is uh, kind of a buzz the past couple of weeks because we have summer school approaching, or I should say summer is approaching. And so I have a couple of facts that we will go over, which are questions 91 and 93 on the FFCRA facts website, which you'll see there is the link. And I want to go over that as well, just to give you an idea of what employers are, are seeing and dealing with lately. All right, so insurance premium credits. We talked about this last week when Bob Radicke was on. If you don't have a good frame of reference for this, I do recommend you download the podcast from last week with Bob Radicke and listen to that one because we go into a lot of detail. And for now, though, this is a little bit of a recap. So last week we talked about these credits being issued and the fact that there are special rules around the premium credits because most of them are considered ERISA plan assets. And because the premium credit is considered an ERISA plan asset, you as the employer have to handle it according to ERISA rules to avoid a claim for breach of fiduciary duty. So we want to talk about that. First, though, let's start at the top. We are mostly seeing dental and vision premiums being refunded or, or uh, premium credits for that. I would say they're mostly dental, but that's changing a little bit because we've got two carriers who have come out and said they're issuing rebates for medical. So here we have, last week we knew that MetLife, Principal, UHC, Delta Dental, Guardian, they had already said we're going to issue some version of a premium credit. And some employers could maybe even extend a rate guarantee instead of take a credit. Uh, now we're seeing Sun Life Dental, Cigna Dental, Hawaii Dental Service, Aetna Dental, United Healthcare Medical in California and Dental, and Anthem and Medical and Dental, hot off the press, Anthem Medical and Dental. All of these carriers have announced that they are issuing premium credits or rebates. So if you have one of these carriers and you have not gotten communication with regards to this, please do get some clarification, um, reach out to your broker, and they can get you some more clarification if you didn't get an email from the carrier themselves. Each carrier is handling the timing of the credits and the actual way that they're distributing the credit a little bit differently. 
So I, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to say, oh, everyone's going to get a credit in July because each carrier has their own guidelines for that. That is pretty interesting. I will say that, you know, the reason they're doing this is, is because non-essential healthcare services were shut down for many months and they're starting to open here in California, which is promising. But for those months that they were shut down, the carriers were incurring claims, but yet we were still paying premiums. So this is the carrier's way of doing what is right. With regards to medical, carriers have had to abide by the medical loss ratio rebate rules that was born out of the Affordable Care Act. They've always had to do that since the Affordable Care Act. And uh, those that are issuing medical credits now are trying to get that loss ratio back in line. So, uh, and that's, that's part of what they're doing there. These are only for fully insured policies, only fully insured policies. If you have a self-funded medical or dental plan, you're going to see the, the relief in claims. You feel that uh, every month when you pay out because you're self-insured. So there is no, will not be any credits or rebates for self-insured policies. So premium credits must be treated in a similar fashion as MLR rebates. If you have gotten an MLR rebate, you probably are familiar with what I'm saying when I say that. Um, if you have not, that may not mean anything to you. So we'll talk about that for a second. If your company pays 100% of the entire premium, both employee and dependent, no refund needs to be passed to your participants. The employer can keep all of that. That's only if your company pays 100% of the entire premium for the policy which issued the premium credit. So in, this, in these instances, it's mostly dental, um, but in some instances, it's medical as well and vision. So just be wary, aware of that. If your company requires a cost share from participants, the rebate or the refund or the credit, however it may look like, must be handled according to ERISA rules to avoid a claim for breach of fiduciary duty as the plan administrator. There's one notable exception here, and that's if your plan document, your ERISA, your WRAP plan document includes language allowing the employer to keep the refund or the rebate. There are some plan documents that were drafted with that language, certainly not all of them. So you may want to look at your ERISA wrap document. If you're asking what an ERISA wrap document is, uh, if you heard that and you're asking what it is, I have been, let's, let's get you an ERISA wrap document. Um, that would be the, the first step to compliance. And if you don't have one, then obviously you don't have language that allows you to to keep it. So you need to handle it according to the, the rebate or the refund or the credit. You need to handle that so that you are giving the participants back the share that they paid in for the month of the, the rebate. I have a few questions. If there's, um, if there's currently no language in your WRAP plan document allowing you as the, as the plan administrator or the employer to keep the premium credits, there's a question on, can you now put one in? Yes, I, I think you could. And let's talk about the, what that would look like. And let's consider the optics of uh, such a decision. 
if you've not yet received your premium credit or your premium rebate and you want to be able to keep all of it as the employer, you could right now update your SPD and your plan document. And then you would have to distribute it to your plan participants so that they have the new wrap documents and you've satisfied the distribution requirement by the DOL and ERISA. And if you did then distribute it and then you got a refund or a rebate or a credit and it has that new language allowing you to keep the amounts, then yes, you could keep all of the amounts. The, and the reason I say let's consider the optics is because you at least want to, let's, let's assume the worst. Let's assume an employee knows what you've done. They know that you've updated your plan document so just so you could keep the premium rebate or the premium credit. And the, you have one employee that finds out for whatever reason, this is just, I'm just making up a scenario, a worst case scenario. And the employee starts to tell other employees what the employer has done. The company did this so they could keep all of that money because they didn't want to give us back our premiums that we paid into. I would say that that is a tough story to tell or to overcome. So before you do update your documents to allow you to keep that language, just consider if you would be ready to uh, defend yourself in that scenario that an employee did question why you did it and, and if, if they found out it may have been because you wanted to keep all of that rebate <clears throat> and uh, so no judgment here just letting you know that is something I would consider if the employer only pays a hundred percent for employee only premium can the rebate go to dependent premium coverage cost share I Yes, so let me clarify what, what you're asking. If the employee has to pay any amount for insurance, and also that includes their dependent share, then yes, any amount they pay in should be paid back to them if you do receive a premium credit for that policy. So yes, unless the employer is paying 100% of all of the premium, employee and dependent premium, then the employer is obligated to share in that premium credit. And ideally, reasonably, what you do is you're, you would allocate the portion that, they, that the participant paid into the premium, which is the dependent share in your scenario, and then you would then um, allocate that, maybe assign a percentage amount to it, and then give that percentage amount of the rebate back to the plan participant. All right, let's move on to the next slide. I think I've answered all relevant questions for that one, so we'll move on. Now here the IRS notice 2020-29. So what it did, it, it, it was a set of guidelines that allows an employer to accept mid-year changes without a qualifying event. So it increased Section 125 flexibility rules around qualifying events. And uh, first, let's back up a little bit. A Section 125 is most commonly referred to as two components, a premium-only plan, which we call a POP. So we might say, oh, do you have a POP? And if you have a POP, what it means is you're taking pre-tax contributions for medical, dental, or vision. 
or a lot of people refer to a Section 125 as a flexible spending account, an FSA, because an FSA is allowable by Section 125 rules. So um, the POP and the FSA are really, you know, the components of a Section 125. The first component, the IRS said, an employer can choose to allow employees to make a new election if they declined before, to change the plans with the employer prospectively, drop coverage prospectively, although the employee has to attest in writing that they're enrolling or already enrolled in other health coverage. The IRS said you could allow that, but the employer can choose to limit the changes allowed or the employer can choose not to adopt any of the changes under the premium only plan. And I will say with my experience, I have not had an employer adopt the premium only plan changes as of yet. It's all focused on the FSA. They're not allowing changes to the medical, dental, or vision without a qualifying event. And I will say that that is practical because most carriers are not allowing these mid-year changes without a qualifying event. And so you would think that the carrier will allow whatever the IRS said that employers can allow, but they don't have to because the IRS said these changes are optional. So most of the carriers I've talked to have said, no, we're, we're not going to follow those, the IRS notice. If an employer says they want to offer a mid-year change without a qualifying event, we will not honor it. Well, we won't let that happen. So I put that, I want to emphasize that because before you communicate any changes to employees with regards to being able to enroll or disenroll in the plan, please work with your broker to contact the carrier for approval first because you may find that the carrier is not willing to play ball. And that would put you in a bad position if you'd already communicated to employees. See, I had a question regarding the premium credits that go, kind of going back a slide. Uh, someone said from a previous webinar that was actually two weeks ago, if you have a fixed cost sharing arrangement, and instead of uh, having communicated a percentage split with your employees, we may not need to share the credit. Is that so accurate? It is accurate. It is accurate in that if you, if the way that your contributions are communicated to employees is that you tell the employee you have to pay X amount of dollars each paycheck for your benefits. The employer could then change their contributions uh, at any time and then say, and then um, be okay. And what that means is you can keep the rebate. However, if you're the employer and you communicated in any type of environment or materials to your employee that you're paying 75%, let's say, a percentage, then you do not get to keep the rebate. But if you did communicate only a fixed cost sharing arrangement where you've said to your employee, you pay me 50 bucks a month and I'll give you this insurance, then yes, you would be able to keep that premium credit. Someone asked if we could add a date range to make changes on the, with regards to Section 125. Within the IRS notice, yes, you can. There's nothing that would not allow this. So the answer is yes, you can. But I want to add a disclaimer. I've spoken with a particular TPA this week, an FSA TPA, and that TPA 
would not allow a customized date range. So this is another example of when the law doesn't mandate something, it only makes it optional. Your TPA or your carrier does not have to follow the same rules. So in the example of what I gave, this particular TPA said, we're not going to let you put limits. It's either this or it's that. And if the employer did not want to adopt this or that, then the employer simply could, could not do it because their TPA was not willing to work within those boundaries. So as I said before, please make sure, get approval from your FSA vendor first before you communicate to employees. So we talked about the subset of the Section 125, which is the premium-only plan, so making changes to your medical, your dental, or your vision coverage. Uh, but we also want to talk about the FSA, because the FSA is where I'm seeing most employers are allowing or adopting the changes under the FSA and not necessarily the POP. And with good reason. It, it does make sense. Uh, when you can, it makes sense to allow it because it, a lot of us made our FSA budgets thinking that we were going to be able to, you know, we were not going to have a, a public health emergency. And so we thought, oh, we're going to be able to incur these expenses and these months, and then all of a sudden we're not able to do so. So it makes sense that the employee may not, um, may not need those funds anymore, and we want to make sure that we give the employee every opportunity to use those funds. So employers are adopting the FSA, not so much the POP. So let's talk about FSA. The healthcare, including the limited purpose uh, FSA accounts and the DCAP, and DCAP is dependent care, the dependent care accounts, changes, you can allow for your employees to revoke their election, to make a new one, to decrease or increase their existing elections on a prospective basis only. So if my employee comes to me and says, I want to make a change, I, I elected $100, or I elected, um, I've already put $1,000 into my account, I want that $1,000 back because I'm not going to use it. That is a retroactive change. So it can only be a prospective change if you allow it. And again, these are optional. You do not have to allow it. And if you do allow it, you could even customize what you allow if your FSA carrier is on board or your FSA vendor, we would call them. Of course, do not allow for changes that for overspent accounts or, or at least limit changes to ensure the accounts aren't overspent. So you don't want someone who's used all of their maximum to, to then stop their contributions because they're overspent and now you as the employer are on the hook. So when you send out communication to your participants, ensure that you're using some type of sample language. And I've given you some sample language, which is, you know, you might say, you might communicate that healthcare FSA and dependent care FSA mid-year election changes will be limited to amounts no less than amounts already reimbursed um, or year-to-date contributions. So if you add some sort of language to your employee communication to that end, that ensures that you're not going to be on the hook for an employee that already overspent their account. So it's kind of a, a tiny detail, but one that's very important. And then I can't stress this enough, contact your FSA vendor to adopt any of the increased flexibility 
and do not send out communication to your employees until your FSA vendor has approved your changes because we are finding that FSA vendors are limiting what you can customize as, as a change in their system. And, and of course, you want to be on the same page with your FSA vendor because your FSA vendor is the one administering anything that you've communicated, so they need to be on the same page with you. So that's an important piece of, of implementing this. So the, the IRS has noted that you know, the paperwork involved behind these changes is uh, generally you need to issue something called an SMM, which is a Summary of Material Modifications, otherwise known as an amendment. But the IRS is saying, we know that this is a very, very um, sensitive time. We don't want you to have to worry about the paperwork in the back end. So you have until 1231 of 2021 to, uh, to send out an amendment. And it can be retroactive all the way back to January 1 of 2020. Uh, and the retroactive application is only for the election changes that employers already allowed. Because remember, any changes you allow now have to be prospective. And so you have plenty of time to, to issue these amendments to your plan participants, but you want to communicate the changes in some informal fashion so your employees are aware of what they're allowed to do now. So again, we did talk about this last week in depth. This is a little bit of a recap just in, to emphasize, and I know it's, it's nice to hear something more than once. So if you're interested in, in last week's discussion on this, please feel free to download that podcast and, and listen to it again. Continuing on with the IRS noted, notice, there's also extended claims periods for health FSAs and, and DCAPs that you can adopt. So employers can permit unused amounts in the healthcare FSA or the DCAP at the end of the plan year or grace period ending in 2020 to be used to reimburse expenses all the way to December 31st of 2020, if you wish. Now, this only applies to non-calendar year plans and 2019 calendar year plans that had a grace period that ended in 2020. That's an important point of clarification. It does apply to both general purpose and limited purpose, and it applies to health FSAs with a carryover or grace period. So HSA eligibility, one thing to note that when you extend the claim filing period for your general purpose health FSAs, so your full healthcare FSAs, that makes an employee ineligible to make HSA contributions because it goes back to the old rule that you cannot have an FSA and an HSA at the same time. Uh, so, therefore, if an employee can, can make a, an extended claim filing all the way to December 31st of 2020, they're not eligible to make HSA contributions during that time period. So, it is one thing to consider as you uh, consider adopting any of this. And again, the extension is also optional for employers. Someone asked when FSA changes need to be made by and the answer to that is it really just depends. It, it's, it's up to you. You can customize that. I know we had an employer say, we're going to do just a, uh, we're going to open up a small window of changes. So we're only going to allow our employees to make changes by the end of July. I had another employer say by the end of November. Uh, but under the rules, you could adopt all the way, you could let your employees make changes all the way to December 31st of 2020. I will say it does make a little bit, I think it's more logical 
to just open up a window and instead of just saying, oh, you can make changes all the way to December 31st. If you open up some sort of a window logistically and practically, I think that makes the most sense. And then we had another IRS notice on the topic of carryovers, somewhat related, but not, uh, but let's kind of switch gears. It's the FSA rollover amount was increased. This was actually in response to something, to an executive order issued in uh, June of 2019. So I, so I say it came out of nowhere. It didn't necessarily, but it's not, it's not tied to the, the other notice we just talked about. This is for the 2020 plan year. The carryover can be increased to $550. So if your plan year starts on uh, July 1, the carryover can be amended to $550. So that's, that's nice. The plan, if you have a plan that started on January 1 of this year, you can also go back and amend to adopt the increased rollover. And so please, if this is, if you're on the line and you have a January 1 FSA, go ahead and contact your FSA vendor and tell them you want to adopt the increased carryover. Of course, that is if you already had a carryover. If you were using a grace period, that does not apply. It's not, it's not expressly clear if the 2020 calendar year plan can amend the plan to adopt a carryover instead of a grace period. And I know there have been some employers who have asked if they can go back and, and do a carryover instead of a grace period. And what I'm seeing is that TPAs are not supporting that type of change. They're, they're telling our employers, no, you cannot do that. Even though the IRS Notice 2020-33 does not expressly state that you can or you cannot, the TPAs are taking their own stance and they're not allowing their employers to do that. The rollover increased amount can apply retroactively back to 1-1-2020. You just need to contact your FSA administrator. And the way that the carryover amounts are calculated is changing. And that's beginning with this year, the 2020 plan year. Carryover is now going to be 20% of the annual health FSA contribution limit, which is a change from what it used to be. So next we get into extended COBRA deadlines. We talk, we've talked about this at length for a, a while now. When, they first, when it first came out, it was very confusing, very unassuring, and there was no guidance from the DOL telling employers or professionals alike what to do or, or how to do it. So let's back up a little bit. The extended deadlines require employers to discard the outbreak period when applying a normal deadline for COBRA when it comes to an initial or an election notice, a COBRA election itself, and a COBRA payment deadline. So the outbreak period is from March 1st until 60 days after the national emergency is over. Well, we still don't know when that national emergency will expire, so we don't have a hard deadline, but we do know that um, COBRA participants have a lot of extra time to make COBRA payments or even elect COBRA to begin with. And this became a bit of an issue because there wasn't clarity. Employers were saying, am I allowed to cancel a COBRA participant for not making a payment? Is, um, it, you know, what does that mean if I'm not allowed to? Who's going to pay for that premium? 
And so it created these administrative issues that we were all up in arms about saying, what do we do? What do we do? Well, I will say that the guidance is not clear, but we have several ERISA attorneys who, who have agreed that canceling coverage for non-payment of premium appears to be okay using the current guidelines as long as the COBRA participant has the ability to reinstate the participant's coverage once payment is made within the extended time frame. So essentially, if I'm a COBRA participant and I stop paying in March, but I come back to you as the employer, I come back to you in August and I say, oh, well, here, I'm going to make this payment. Here's all the premiums that were due. Then you have to reinstate my coverage back to March 1 or whenever I paid the premiums back to. So that's what the notice is saying. And a lot of attorneys agree that, yes, you still can cancel for non-payment of premiums, but if your COBRA participant at, at some point gives you the, the premiums, then you have to reinstate their coverage as long as they do it within the extended time frame. So then it becomes a question of, will the carrier allow the retroactive enrollment or the retroactive cancellation if that's in play as well? Carriers have just started to respond to that, saying that they will allow those retroactive enrollments and disenrollments pursuant to the agency's notice of the COBRA extended deadlines. So the carriers are saying, yes, we're going to allow it because essentially the law tells us we have to <laughs> because the agency's notice was not an optional uh, mandate. It was, it was a law. So the carriers have to abide by that. So that gives us a lot more clarity because there were a lot of COBRA vendors out there saying that they were not going to change any of their processes. They were going to keep the same deadline. And we feared for the employers that this would create some liability on their end if the COBRA administrator decided to do that. But now we have lots of attorneys saying that, okay, the, we agree with the, care, the COBRA vendor's approach. We think that's going, going to be okay. And until we get more clarification, then that is, that is the, the info we have for today. I keep hoping for a set of DOL facts to be released regarding this, this COBRA uh, deadlines, the extended deadlines, but I, I haven't seen, there aren't any at this point, but I, I certainly hope they do release them. It would give us a lot of comfort so we can sleep better at night. So my favorite segment, my favorite segment, excuse me, toilet paper talk, relevant issues I'm hearing from last week. So I'm still hearing from employers with regards to adopting the, one, the Section 125 increased flexibility options. And what we're starting to see now is employers are saying, here's my decision. And so we go to the FSA vendor, and the FSA vendor is saying, well, we're only going to allow you to do this and not this. And so um, there's a lot of conversations like that happening. And I will say that there are some TPAs, some FSA vendors or slash TPAs that are not as responsive as we want them to be, and that's been frustrating. So if you're experiencing that, I totally understand your frustration. It, um, and, and I guess we, we have to exercise some patience because they must be under an incredible amount of stress as well. So we're just showing a little bit of grace there, although some are very on top of it, and that's been wonderful. As I, said, as I said before, most employers are only adopting FSA changes. They're not adopting any of the 
the changes to a medical, dental, or vision plan, let's say. They're, they're following the qualifying events rules. They're continuing to, qual to follow those rules. Also, uh, employers are starting to notify employees of any changes that, to their plans that were related to COVID-19. So that would start off with the FSA and the HRA, the over-the-counter changes, which was awesome. Um, that, so, and you'd also want to communicate the COVID-19 testing and the related services are covered at 100%. And you want to communicate any, any changes that you're, or any flexibility you are adopting under Section 125. That communication at this point, that communication can be something informal, like an email. Or it could be a flyer that you attach to your, uh, an employee's paycheck or whatever means of communication you use right now. You can do something informal with regards to notifying your employees for now. You can do that. And then later you can go back and issue a, an amendment and that will be the kind of the formal way of communicating to your employees. So you don't have to worry about that until later because the, the, the DOL is saying, hey, we know employers, we know, we don't want you to have to worry about this paperwork, but you do need to communicate with your employees. I've heard a lot about returning to work, as I'm sure that's the focus here for a lot of you on the line. Returning to work, I've had several employers ask me about any wellness check or self-assessment apps that they could use for employees. And uh, it just so happens that Bolton, ourselves as a company, we are looking into these ourselves. And you can see we have a list of companies that we started to vet, and we have a few notes there that you can see. So hopefully when you get a copy of these slides, if you need somewhere to start looking for a self-assessment app, then this list here gives you a, a little bit of a start. Someone asked me a couple days ago if I had heard if the carrier has any type of free app that would provide for a wellness check or self-assessment. And I have not heard that. And so as far as I'm aware, there are none, but it's always, it's always prudent to check with your carrier and reach out to them individually and see if they heard of anything or they've heard of anything that might be coming out. Now that summer's here, Speaking of relevant issues from last week, I've gotten lots of questions regard, with regards to FFCRA for those employers that are subject to FFCRA. Summer's almost here, so that means summer care and child care. So the DOL has question 91 and 93 on their FACTS website where you can go and you can read more. Now, I pulled two of them so we could talk about it. And you can see there's a bit of an attempt to be funny that I stole from someone else. That, uh, so this is just meant for laughs. It's not on the DOL website, but question 91 is essentially, my employees have been teleworking just fine since we all got sent home in March, but now that it's summer, um, they, they, the joke was they want to cultivate their tan, so now they want to take FSCRA. But really, there's legitimate reasons, obviously for taking, uh, taking FFCRA when you have children at home, young children. So they say their kids have been out of school since March, but they've been teleworking just fine since March. So can I ask the employee what's changed and maybe can I deny the leave? And the answer to that question is on the DOL website, question number 91. 
And they start off by saying the fact that your employee has been teleworking before does not mean the employee cannot now take leave. So what I'm going to say here, exercise caution. I'm paraphrasing. And they give an example. Your employee may not have been able to care effectively for the children while teleworking, or perhaps your employee may have made the decision to take paid sick leave or expanded leave uh, for the children so that the, their spouse, who's not eligible for any leave, could work or telework. So these and other reasons are legitimate and do not afford a basis for denying FSCRA. So paraphrasing, exercise caution before you deny leave in these scenarios. The answer in most cases is that yes, you will need to grant it. And you have to be very careful about when you ask what's changed. Definitely very careful if you deny the leave for these reasons. I will say that it's for those bulletin clients on the line, you have access to Think HR. Think HR has some wonderful two-minute videos. And they have a two-minute video on FSCRA and summer leave or summer care. I find it super helpful. Uh, so I, I recommend going into Think HR, clicking on the COVID-19 button. And once you get there, on the left-hand side, you'll see the two-minute videos, and you can pick and choose the ones you want to, to listen to. It is very informative. So question number 93 on the FSCRA fact page on the DOL site. My employee's kids' school closed in March with online instruction only. This Friday is the last day of school. The employee's been teleworking but now wants to start taking school closing FSCRA leave, at least on a part-time basis. This employer says that the employee isn't eligible for FSCRA leave as of Monday because school would have been out anyway. Am I right? The answer is the person's kind of right, but they're not. They're, they're not really. Um, you're, they're right in that the employee wouldn't be entitled to FSCRA leave for school closing related reasons if the school would have been out in any event. But, I mean, if the kid's summer child care or summer program is closed or the summer caregiver is unavailable because of COVID, the employee is still entitled to FSCRA leave for the time that he or she couldn't telework. Now, I had seven-year-olds at home. Some of you all may know that. I have twins. Um, and I can attest to the fact that a lot of the summer programs are closed, and it's breaking my heart. It's breaking my children's hearts. Um, so just because their school is closed does not mean that, that one cannot be eligible for FSCRA because my kids' summer care program is closed. They're not going to reopen. And um, so the... The bottom line here is whenever you deny for the summer care reason, be very, very cautious. Um, but think about some examples like this. If a 16-year-old never had a place of care, you, in previous summers they, they didn't have any summer care or summer programs because they don't require care, then, then no, your employee cannot be, be given leave for your, their 16-year-old. Um, or you, you have a spouse who's already a stay-at-home parent, then you can deny the leave. If there's a spouse who's already a stay-at-home parent, you can deny the leave if there aren't any, any qualifying reasons. But you can't really ask for proof. You cannot really ask for proof. Let's say that again. You can't really ask for proof. So Think HR in their video, I thought it was so interesting. Their two-minute video, not interesting, but meaningful. They said, dig deep and trust 
your employees. That's what this is going to be about because there's not really any proof you can ask for. You have to take their word for it. Um, someone else on the line said they had seven-year-old twins too. That's crazy. <laughs> I, I'm with you. I'm with you. We can share our pain. Um, all right. So I hope that brought you some clarity talking about the FFCRA and, and summer leaves or summer care, I should say. If someone's been working effectively um, with small children at home and now they want to take FFCRA, be cautious. Be cautious. Don't ask for proof. Take their word for it. Um, and there, there certainly are, are real reasons on why they would want to take that FFCRA leave that don't have to do with anything about cultivating its hands, which was the joke in the prior slide. That was just to get a laugh. And it was not my joke. <laughs> not my joke. I stole it. All right. We're going to finish up here uh, for once. I believe we're going to get out under an hour. I'm going to go over the guidance wish list. We've talked about this from the very, very beginning of these of this podcast, where I gave you a list of things I wanted to see that would help you as an employer administer benefits and, and do the right thing. And so it started off with Section 125 guidance, which we got. And that was two weeks ago. It says last week, but that actually two weeks ago. I still want guidance on ACA measurement and stability periods. How are they going to be affected for employees that were furloughed? Are we going to have to carve out that couple months period when you look at, when you start to measure employees? And, and, and so there's some guidance that needs to be given there, and there has been none as of yet, so we're still waiting. Extending COBRA grace periods. I know we just talked about the fact that we've got some further clarification from ERISA attorneys that make us comfortable, but I want clarification for the DOL. I mean, it's time for them to come out and give us some facts so we can be comfortable canceling coverage for our COBRA participants if they don't make payments. Now, having an ERISA attorney say it's okay, you can, that does bring some comfort. There's no doubt. But the most comfortable position we could be in is if the DOL came out and told us that, and they've not yet done it. So that's frustrating. And last week, uh, we talked about the HEROES Act. It was two weeks ago. We were talking about the HEROES Act, and the HEROES Act had some federal subsidies for COBRA premiums, which was included in all of the legislative packages that were brought before the House and the Senate. Well, now it looks like the, the legislators are shifting and the politicians are shifting and saying we may not see another stimulus package. We've got the House and the Senate are not on the same page. So, uh, and there's some thought that we don't need another one. And so that's just an update there from a, from a legislative standpoint that we may not see another federal package come through. Uh, there was some buzz because that other that next package was going to include another direct payment and it was going to expand unemployment. I hope it's it, it's good news that we may not see another stimulus package, but that's that's uh, not for me to comment today. Just to let you know that that we may not see it at all. I'll finish up with some resources that I would love for you to know is out there for you. The first one is that you can subscribe to our blog, the boltonco.com slash blog. Anyone can subscribe there. That will keep you in the loop, not only with benefits, but also um, Bolton and Company has um, property and commercial and business lines. So we have 
authors that are putting out content on that every now and then. For benefit-related questions, if you're a Bolton client, please feel free to contact your team members and, and get in touch with them, as I'm sure you already know. And for Bolton clients that have, that have Think HR, or you all have Think HR, Think HR has always been a great resource for HR-related items, um, sample forms, including an SFCRA leave request form, return to work checklist, those two-minute videos I discussed, communication to employees when employee test positive, lots of good stuff on there. For employment matters, those of you who have been along for the ride the past couple of months, you know that I've had Nicole Cam on from Fisher Phillips a few times because employment concerns are so prevalent right now. So I wanted to bring in a partner to talk about that. The Fisher Phillips website has so many good facts. It's easy to search for your specific answers that you need. And if you look at their site, if you go to the landing page, you'll see different um, uh, blocks and you can click on the blocks. One of them is a COVID-19 data bank where you can pull down useful templates and forms. At all free, all free, no cost. So you can get an answer or a form at no cost without having to pay an attorney, including an authorization to disclose a COVID diagnosis, a manager talking points, employee symptom questionnaire. I mean, they've got a lot of data out there that I think would be super helpful. So I just wanted to, to make sure that everyone knew about those resources. I hope everyone got some useful information about this. I'm so glad you came back and, and uh, we were able to talk and I was able to answer your questions. Thanks so much for joining and I will talk to you in a couple weeks. Bye everyone.